press. From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us on this Friday before we celebrate Independence Day. And there is much to be grateful for this Independence Day. I want to remind you of a great opportunity to celebrate with us this weekend before we officially celebrate the 4th of July. FRC and the Alliance Defending Freedom are hosting a live special event in the aftermath of the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark decision in Dobbs. The event, titled Celebrating Dobbs, Celebrating Life, will be live streamed this Sunday, July 3rd, starting at 7 o'clock Eastern Time. To watch online, visit adflegal.org slash celebrating life. Again, that is adflegal.org slash celebrating life. We'll also post that link in the details for today's program at tonyperkins.com. Look forward to celebrating with you then. That's Sunday, July 3rd, 7 o'clock Eastern time. Today on the program, with abortion being more difficult to do in some places now, the abortion industry is looking to prioritize chemical abortions. We'll talk about what they're doing, what their plans are, and what the risks are today on the program. In addition, the Supreme Court has said you can no longer discriminate against religious schools in school choice programs. But the Attorney General of Maine is desperate to continue discriminating against them. We'll give you the strange details today in the program. Also, the result of Dobbs is a cause for celebration, but the story of how we got a majority Supreme Court that would vote to overturn Roe is one worth remembering. We're going to tell that story at the end of the program today, so stay tuned for that. But first, our top story today. After a string of favorable rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court on some major cases, the justices yesterday finished their landmark term. And in one of the final decisions, the Supreme Court affirmed the right of the Biden administration to end Title 42, the Trump-era order that gives Border Patrol agents the power to turn away migrants on public health grounds. Now, the 5-4 decision was welcomed by Democratic leaders who are calling for President Biden to quickly end the program. But Republicans warn against rescinding Title 42, saying it will increase the already record numbers of illegal border crossings. Congressman James Comer had this to say just days before the Supreme Court ruling. When we talk to the Border Patrol, they say that this administration continues to do things to tie their hands, like the recent announcement to suspend Title 42. Uh, That's only making the illegal border crossings significantly increase. When the border border crossing increases, there's more drugs that go across the border. So this administration is going to have to get serious. So what might we see moving forward? Joining me now to talk about it is U.S. Congressman Chuck Fleischman, who serves on three subcommittees in the House Appropriations Committee, including the Subcommittee on Homeland Security and the Subcommittee on Labor, Health and Human Services, Education and Related Agencies. He represents the third congressional district of Tennessee. Congressman, welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. 
It's good to speak with you. The Supreme Court decided the Biden administration has the executive authority to end the remain in Mexico policy if they wish. What's your reaction to that? Well, as the ranking member, the highest Republican on the Homeland Security Appropriations Subcommittee, I deal every day with the frailties and the failures of the Biden administration at the border. Whether it's the Title 42 policy, which they want to get rid of, whether now they want to get rid of the the uh, buffer in Mexico where people were staying, these were working. Anything that was keeping our border safe under President Trump, who was a genius when it came to the border, uh, we were safe. Crossings were down. The wall was getting built. Uh, Biden has taken us in the complete different direction. I think what we have to do is look at it two ways. First of all, uh, in respect to the Supreme Court, which I think had a very good week uh, with the Dobbs decision and repealing and rolling back the EPA strengths, we've got to remember that they've got to rule independently. So on a legal basis, on a legal basis, uh, I think it was the correct decision. The result is a disaster, but Upholding the executive branch's enumerated right to make these decisions. First, it was President Trump. I think he did it the right way. Now it's President Biden. I think he's doing it the wrong way. But that's not for the court to have to decide. That's something within the purview of the executive branch. Congress is now going to have to come in. I'm going to have to come in with my brethren, my good conservative brethren, and do everything possible to plug up this dangerously porous border, which is crime-ridden. Um, it's being overridden. We could see another 2 million, 2 million illegal immigrants pour over and just be released willy-nilly into the country. It's wrong. It's bad. But in fairness to the court, and we've got to be very respectful of the court, um, legally, given the constitutional constraints that they had, uh, they made the right decision. And Congressman Fleischman, I think you make a really important point there because there's been a lot of debate about the court. But we as conservatives understand that the process is more important in many cases than the outcome. And what we've seen in a lot of these cases is the left doesn't really think about the legal reasoning. They don't think about the process, the checks and balances, the limits of power that each branch has. They're just outraged by the result. In this case, we might be frustrated that the executive branch has made this decision, but that does not mean the executive branch doesn't have the power to do so. And there's a big difference between whether the, between those things, whether they have the power or they should exercise that power. And I appreciate you making uh, that distinction. You know, on the border policy, uh, there's some polling that shows that 51 percent of Hispanic voters support the remain in Mexico policy. We've seen some districts there on the Texas-U.S. border uh, vote for Republicans for the first time in more than 100 years. Do you think as a political matter that's going to be significant if, it, if the Biden administration follows through on their promise to revoke and repeal the remain in Mexico policy? The most fascinating thing we have seen is in the Latino community, the tremendous move toward the Republican Party. And I've always said um, our Latino friends uh, believe in God. They believe uh, in the free enterprise system. Many of these people flee the horrors of socialism, whether it's in Cuba or Venezuela or these countries. These people know when they come here that freedom is to be cherished, the rule of law is to be cherished. And I will say this, uh, Republicans are going to do extremely well again in uh, the Latino community all across this great nation 
because the Biden administration, whether it's at the border with its failed policies, whether it's with its radical left-wing agenda, anything it touches, uh, wanting to change uh, uh, America for the wrong way, uh, they will not succeed because the good people of this country uh, across racial, ethnic, and, and, and sex lines will certainly embrace good, solid Republican conservative principles that uphold our Constitution and the rule of law. And another question on kind of public sentiment on this issue, because the Remain in Mexico policy applies to people who have sought asylum. And the question is, where do they wait for that to be adjudicated? Do they wait in the country of origin in Mexico, where they're coming from in many cases, or do they wait in the United States for that decision to be resolved? And sometimes it takes years to do so. The federal government's own data shows that about 1.6% of those asylum seekers have a valid claim, which indicates that people are making baseless claims for asylum and then coming into the country and then simply disappearing while that uh, while that decision is uh, made by the by the US government does it matter to the Biden administration that their own data shows that the vast majority 98% of all of those asylum claims are not valid it doesn't matter to the Biden administration because every move that we make to secure the border with technology, with people, anything that is successful, building the wall. Uh, I got wall funding, President Trump's wall funding in the last appropriations bill. Biden just refuses to build it. Why? Because it works. Uh, make it clear, this administration wants open and porous borders. They do not care. They will afford anything that works. And the reality is uh, it's an abysmal failure for the United States. It is so bad right now, Joseph, that the Biden administration wants to take the asylum decision away from administrative law judges and let Border Patrol agents make that decision. Why? Because when they do it, people will scream right into this country. Uh, they'll be rubber stamped and, and they'll go right in and it's, it's a disaster. So the bottom line answer is Biden and his radical left wing minions are doing everything possible to hurt our border security. It's an outrage. The American people deserve better. We will get better. Congressman Fleischman, I want to deal with another topic with you. You've already mentioned it, but the Supreme Court had another decision significantly impacting the Environmental Protection Agency and their ability to govern through rule, agency rules. What is the impact of that decision? This is a very powerful, impactful decision. And let me step back a little bit as a constitutional lawyer and, and in full respect of our great republic. Congress has this constitutional authority. Make it clear. Uh, it is in the Constitution. What has happened over time, sadly, Congress as an institution has given up this authority to the executive branch. That's outrageous. So the creation of the IRS, the creation of the EPA, the creation of the SEC, pick the government agency, many of whom have gone out and created their own courts, if you can believe it. Uh, this is Congress, I believe, giving up its authority wrongly. The American people need to make sure that Congress takes this authority making decision back. Why? Because as a duly elected representative of the people of the third district or any of my 435 brethren in the house, I am responsible to my constituents for my decisions at the ballot box. These unelected bureaucrats 
uh, at EPA or at any of these other organizations, IRS, that come up with their own agenda and enforce it their own way are not accountable to the people of this country, and they've abused that power for years. So the impact of this decision is huge, it's correct, and the American people ought to, as constitutionalists, demand that Congress take this power back. They should have never given it away. That is a lazy congressional activity that has gone back for decades. Congress needs to take that back, not only have power of the purse, power of oversight, and hold these government agencies accountable for their rulings. Fundamentally, uh, if you like the decisions that the APA was making, uh, that's okay, but Congress has to be the one to make those decisions, and that's what the Supreme Court said. It's not necessarily about what they're doing, but is the right person, is the right agency, the right part of our government doing that? One final issue, uh, the Biden administration continues to respond to Dobbs. Here's what President Biden had to say. Let's play clip one. And I share the public outrage that this extremist court has committed to moving America backwards with fewer rights, less autonomy, and politicians invading the most personal decisions that not only women, but we'll find if they expand, expand on, on this decision, uh, men as well. But as I've said last week, this is not over. Congressman Fleischman, in about 30 seconds, what does he mean it's not over? Well, the mumbling president reading from his left-wing teleprompter can't even articulate this message correctly, but we have got to realize this was a landmark decision curing one of the worst precedents that was ever set in American jurisprudence. Roe versus Wade was and is flawed constitutional law that was brought out by the justices. It took tremendous courage to basically get it right. We're a nation, a rule of law, we got it right. But conservatives and Christians cannot rest on their laurels. We've got to remember this. The left is going to come fighting back. Conservatives need to stand up and and That's the point. God. And we do have to go. Congressman Fleischman, thank you for your time. Sorry to be so brief. We'll be back with more right after the break. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. 
Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldviews monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can watch this and every episode of Washington Watch at your convenience. Well, it's been a week since the landmark Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade. But the Biden administration has wasted no time as it scrambles to find new ways around laws meant to protect unborn children. At the top of this list is chemical abortion a pill regimen distributed under the brand name Mifeprex. Not only does this chemical coat hanger kill the unborn, but it also poses significant risks to the health of mothers, risks the abortion industry are all too eager to ignore. Joining me now to discuss this is Mary Zock. She's the director of the Center for Human Dignity here at FRC. Mary, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Joseph. Good to see you. It's been quite a week. Uh, You've been all over the place. Um, Now that you've had a week to digest the Dobbs decision, do you feel any different now than you did a week ago? Well, I'm excited for new opportunities to protect unborn children in the womb. Um, I've been encouraged by the what I've seen the reaction of the the pro-life movement to be, which has been supporting moms who are in need coming out to to help women who have found themselves unexpectedly pregnant and calling for legislation protecting life and supporting mothers. Um, so I think that the future looks bright. If we, we certainly um, are, are grieved that over 60 million unborn children uh, died under the tyranny of Roe. Um, but, but we will march forward, continuing to defend life. And Mary, not only are there indications, there are essentially promises from the abortion industry that they are going to uh, further prioritize chemical abortion as a way of attempting to provide abortions in places where it won't be legal to do so. Why is this such a big deal? Well, it's a huge deal because this is really the pro-abortion industry showing their cards. The chemical abortion is not safe, certainly for an unborn child, but It is also unsafe for women. We know that chemical abortion is four times as likely to to cause severe complications as surgical abortion. 
And we know that surgical abortion is not safe. So chemical abortion is even worse than that. The fact that the pro-abortion industry is pushing chemical abortion is, is telling women, you know, email this address and you'll receive these pills in the mail. Who knows where they're from? Who knows whether or not you have an ectopic pregnancy? Who knows if you're RH negative? Who knows how far along you are in gestation? The pro-abortion industry does not care. All they care about is the fact that women will continue to have abortions and they'll continue to make money from that. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra addressed this issue this week. Let's play clip three and then Mary, I wanna give you a chance to respond. Working to increase access to this drug is a national imperative and in the public interest. We will continue to support the FDA and its rigorous scientific review for these safe and effective drugs. We will also work with the Attorney General and the Department of Justice as they work to ensure that states may not ban medication abortion based on a disagreement with the FDA's expert judgment about the drug's safety and efficacy. So Mary appears to be setting up a, for sure a political battle, perhaps a legal battle as well. Is he essentially promising that he's going to attempt to stop states from banning this chemical abortion drug despite laws against abortion? Well, thankfully, he, he doesn't have as much power as he thinks he has. But, but what he is talking about, about the FDA's safety uh, judgment that this drug is, is safe, the FDA has made their judgment without any actually actual reporting requirements surrounding chemical abortion. So all reporting to the FDA on chemical abortion complications are voluntary, with the exception of the reporting of death. And, and so the FDA can't actually accurately assess whether or not this drug is safe. Um, but, but we know that it is not. We know that the further along a woman is in gestation, the more likely she is to have an incomplete pregnancy. We know that incomplete pregnancy occurs up to 10% of the time. And, and there are six states right now that require abortion complications to be broken down by abortion type. And we know from the data in Arkansas that over 88% of abortion complications there were the result of chemical abortion. So Javier Becerra is saying that this drug is safe and that it's simply a political disagreement that is causing states to say that they don't want the women of their state subjected to chemical abortions. It's ridiculous. Yeah, but that does set up to be one of the new debates over abortion broadly in a post-Dobbs world. But Mary, tell us a bit more about how these are used practically. How late in pregnancy are women taking chemical abortion drugs? Well, it's interesting that you ask that, Joseph, because the FDA's approval time for these drugs has, has shifted over the years. Currently, the FDA has approved them for use up to 70 days. Um, but just this past week, one of our interns received a pamphlet while she was up in front of the Supreme Court that was telling women, you can take chemical abortion drugs at greater than 11 weeks of pregnancy. And they said to just increase the second pill that you take, the misoprostol, to increase the amount. And 
that misoprostol pill really is the chemical coat hanger. It is what causes the woman's body to expel her unborn child. And so telling women to take greater amounts of that drug is like sharpening the chemical coat hanger. And what we, what we see here is they're going to make these drugs available in a way that uh, eliminates the questions, the safeguards, the ability of a doctor to find out how late in pregnancy are you, is this appropriate? So you could get women who are literally ordering it through an email address, getting it at a time when everybody would acknowledge it's completely unsafe and taking it anyway, because the process eliminates all the safeguards, assuming we even think abortion is ever safe, which of course we know that it's not, but it's explicitly uh, dangerous for the mother in that case. Mary, what can be done about this? 20 seconds. Well, we need to work for states to pass legislation that protects unborn children beginning at conception, because that both protects unborn children and their mothers from surgical abortion and from the dangers of chemical abortion. Mary Zuck, we so appreciate your work on this. We will be back to talk about it again, I know. Thanks so much for your time and happy fourth. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, despite a recent Supreme Court decision protecting religious schools from government discrimination, the Attorney General of Maine wants to do it anyway. We'll tell you all about it when we come back. Stay with us. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15-week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back, friends, to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Last Wednesday, as Americans awaited the court's decision in the Dobbs case, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its ruling on another major case, Carson v. Macon. That case ended up being a great victory for religious freedom and school choice. 
the Supreme Court ruled six to three that it was unconstitutional to exclude otherwise eligible private schools from a student aid program solely because they are religious. But the state attorney general in Maine is committed to finding a way to discriminate against those schools anyway. Well, here to talk with me about it is Carol Conley. He's the executive director of the Christian Civic League of Maine. And if you're in the great state of Maine, make sure you connect with them. Carol, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, it's great to be back again, Joseph. How are you? I'm well. It's so good to see you. Uh, lots to celebrate as we get ready for the 4th of July. And congrats to you and everyone in the state of Maine who are involved in what I think is the most consequ consequential Supreme Court decisions in our generation. And that's saying a lot uh, because we've had some big ones in the last week even. Uh, but your yeah. Attorney General Aaron Frey is pretty unhappy with this ruling that says the government cannot discriminate against religious schools because they're religious. What's going on there? Well, of course, uh, I think on two parts. Number one, no one was surprised, uh, but we're still thrilled. Uh, we thought, you know, that after December 8th, that, that things looked really good for us to win this. We were hoping for a 6-3, maybe even a 7-2. Uh, so this didn't surprise uh, Attorney Fry at all, our, our Attorney General, and we were very pleased. And neither were we naive uh, or surprised that they were going to try to do this. This is exactly what Maryland tried to do. Uh, when the courts on, on the lower levels uh, said that they could not discriminate against religious entities simply for being a religious entity. And what we were surprised, though, was the, uh, frankly, the bigoted and intolerant comments uh, that he made, rather than just disagreeing with it, um, made some statements that were, frankly, very offensive to uh, folks that are, are religious or folks that, uh, you know, have invested in parochial and, and a religious education. And Carol, I actually want to play a bit of what uh, Attorney General Fry has said. Let's play clip four, and then I'm going to give you a chance to react to that. If what it is that the state wants to do is make sure that its public dollars go to public education, we're going to have to make sure that we retool how these programs work so that that happens. What's your response to this argument that he's really just trying to make sure public dollars go to public education? Well, uh, we, we have said in our statement, of course, we celebrate this, we're thankful for it, but we, we just asked questions. Uh, when he had actually made the comment that the education that is offered in religious schools is in, inimical uh, to public education, I had to look that word inimical up, uh, that basically means in opposition or actually meaning doing harm to the public good. So that's his evaluation of Christian education. Then we asked him, you know, if he was going to suggest or even accuse mainly Christian schools, but any parochial school of being involved in intolerance or discrimination and bigotry, then, then we asked him, you know, what did he mean by that? Does he mean that like if a, a Muslim school wanted to uh, deny someone being a kindergarten teacher for being a cross, you know, dresser or transgender or whether a parochial school uh, wanted to make sure that people, kids can't express themselves as cats or dogs or, you know, we, we talked about those hypotheticals. Is that what bigotry is? And again, if the state is going to deny an entity for not lining up with its orthodoxy regarding, in this case, human sexuality, uh, we, we say, you know, I think it's another waste of taxpayers' money. Uh, the lower courts have already shown uh, that you can't do that. And we, uh, we look forward to uh, that fight. 
Carol, here's another quote from uh, Aaron Fry, and he didn't say this. He wrote it. Um, he said, quote, I intend to explore with Governor Mills administration and members of the legislature statutory amendments to address the court's decision and ensure that public money is not used to promote discrimination, intolerance and bigotry, end quote. So his point here is we must discriminate against some religious institutions because they discriminate. Does he see the irony in that? Well, that's what I've said in a lot of uh, the interviews. As you can imagine, it's been a lot of attention and requests for us to respond to this. And and I, I want to be measured in my response and uh, still to be, you know, have graciousness in that. But the irony that the, the lack of self-awareness that they are promoting tolerance through intolerance, uh, we have yet to see them, uh, you know, awaken to their own hypocrisy. Yeah, and, and it, it really is the point, and I think they they own that. But I think we, what the Christian community needs to understand in general is that they really desperately need to discriminate against religious institutions, not because necessarily they have that title, but because they feel it's an imperative to discriminate against institutions, organizations, individuals that believe Orthodox Christian teaching or Orthodox Muslim teaching or Orthodox Jewish teaching about sexuality and gender. But very quickly. Uh, Carol, in about 30 seconds, what is the implication of this court's decision on education there in Maine and around the country? Well, we are actually, you know, figuring that out right now with uh, some of our great allies like Lions Defending Freedom, First Liberty, Thomas Beckett, as we are uh, working with those schools. Thomas, as you know, my background was I was a headmaster at Bangor Christian Schools. David Carson is a former student of mine. So we're offering counsel. Uh, my personal advice to these schools is Hey, tell the towns of Glenburn and these other qualifying towns, if you already attended school like this, or if you want to come to school, let your town know so that money will go into those municipalities to go to those schools and then challenge the state if they're going to try this. The idea that parents can use the dollars that would be used to educate their kid at a pagan school at a Christian school instead is really, really exciting. We celebrate that this Independence Day. Carol Conley, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Joseph. Coming up, the Dobbs decision, which we continue to celebrate, didn't come out of nowhere. Hear the inside story of how we got a pro-life Supreme Court when we come back. Stay with us. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? 
Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Thankful that you have chosen to spend a few minutes with us. Had a great conversation there with Carol Conley, who's the executive director of the Christian Civic League of Maine, about this Carson v. Macon decision and the fact that the attorney general in Maine continues to want to discriminate against religious institutions because they are religious, which is a position the Supreme Court explicitly said is unconstitutional. But I want to make sure you understand the implication of this decision before we move on. Because what the Supreme Court said is that in any state that has a school choice program, the funds, whether it's an education savings account, whether it's a voucher, whether it is an education tax credit, those funds have to also be available to religious schools for religious education. And of course, that means Christian schools for Christian education. It would mean Jewish schools or Muslim schools or any other kind of religious schools. But the point is that the First Amendment prohibits the government from discriminating against religious institutions because they are religious. And that's precisely what that school choice program in Maine was doing and what many states have been doing for a century in the United States. They've created school choice programs, but it's, but explicitly said religious schools are ineligible. Religious schools are not available to get these funds. The timing of this could not be more important because we are at a moment where the demand for alternative education, as in alternatives to the public school program, are at an all-time high. Uh, whether it is just frustration with the quality of the public education that children are receiving, whether it's frustration with curriculum, things like critical race theory, things like gender theory, things like having drag queens brought into the school during assemblies, whatever the reason is, there are so many people. COVID created a lot of dissatisfaction as well, right? Those policies, whatever the reason is, there is so much demand for alternatives. What the Carson v. Macon decision said is that churches, you can now provide options and you can say, use the same tax dollars 
that would be used to educate your child at the pagan school down the street. And you can take those dollars and use them at the Christian school at your church. If your church does not have a Christian school, hopefully they will have one soon and bring that up to them. So churches can get together in a community. If they're not big enough to have their own, they can create their own. But that's the implication of this. This case opens the door where every child in America, every Christian child raised in a Christian home can now be educated in a Christian school, in a Christian environment, discipling them with the same dollars that would be used at the distinct, distinctly not Christian school down the road. It really does have a chance, the opportunity to change the direction of our country. It's an exciting development, just as exciting, I think, for many of us as Dobbs. Now, our next story. In June, June 24th, 2022, will long be remembered as the day the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the infamous Roe ruling of 1973. But long before that decision, pro-lifers had been working locally in states and in Congress to develop pro-life legislation and to get a Supreme Court that one day would overturn the mistake of Roe. But that did not come easily. And here to provide some important background that should help all of us appreciate the victory of Dobbs a bit more is Ben Johnson. He's the senior reporter and editor at The Washington Stand. He wrote an excellent piece published yesterday at The Washington Stand entitled The Road to Dobbs, the Inside Story of How Pro-Lifers Held the Line Against SCOTUS Moderates. You can find it at WashingtonStand.com. Ben, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks. It's wonderful to be with you. It's good to see you. Uh, let's get straight to us. It's a bit of a history lesson that you tell at really what is an excellent article that I commend to everybody at WashingtonStand.com. What's the history that led to this Dobbs decision? Well, it began really with the, the, the Roe versus Wade decision. And then in 1992, we had Casey come down. In 1992, uh, we had had a majority Republican appointed court, and we thought that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. And as it turned out, all five votes to uphold Roe were Republican appointees. Uh, in the meantime, Bill Clinton appointed two justices to the Supreme Court, replaced a pro-life justice, uh, Byron Wizard White, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so when George W. Bush got two appointments at the same time, he named John Roberts as chief justice. And for a second appointment, we now know that it's uh, Samuel Alito who holds the place. But the first person he named was someone named Harriet Myers. Harriet Myers had been a corporate attorney. He had, she had been his personal attorney. She had no background in constitutional law, no track record. And uh, to the extent that anything was known about her personal views, it was questionable what they were. So uh, the White House outreach had focused more or less on her faith, that she had attended a pro-life church when she was living in Texas. And they focused very heavily on the evangelical community to gin up support for her. This was a pivotal moment because this was the moment where the pro-life evangelical movement found its strength and found a way to stand up to the uh, Republican Party. For decades, the Republican Party treated evangelical churches sort of like as the get-out-the-vote movement of the Republican Party. But if you look at their track record, every justice who was appointed by a Democrat going back to 1967 supported Roe v. Wade, but only half of the Republican-appointed justices opposed it. So ben? that was that was the issue. 
Ben, uh, tell us a bit more about that moment. You've highlighted here the Harriet Myers nomination, and history now knows that she was not on the Supreme Court. But what were the developments? What happened at that critical juncture that led to uh, ultimately she withdrew her own uh, nomination? But what were the developments? What happened? Who was involved at that moment that led uh, to a different path for the Supreme Court? Well, thankfully, a lot of people said we are not going to. Uh, allow this pattern to continue. So uh, one of the people who was involved was Tony Perkins of the Family Research mm -hmm. Council, among others. There's a group called the Arlington Group, which was a coalition of pro-life groups. They wrote a letter to the president, made it public that they were breaking with him on Harriet Myers and they would not support Harriet Myers. Not only did they go public with it, but then they went to the senators and asked the senators to intervene. And when the senators began holding one-on-one -on -one meetings, any senator can hold a meeting with a judicial nominee as part of their advice and consent role. When they began to hold meetings, they realized that she did not have the qualifications. At one point, she was quoted as leaving a meeting and saying, I'll need to brush up on constitutional law before the hearing. So uh, at that point, they realized they didn't have the support, and it turned around. Uh, George Bush at that time, George W. Bush, accused the evangelical movement of not being loyal to him. And one of the things that I thought was so profound, I quoted my piece at uh, the Washington Stand, was that Gary Bauer turned to him at that moment and said, millions of people voted for you because they were pro-life who weren't even Republicans. It's time for you to deliver. And uh, from that point forward, evangelicals demanded that uh, the, the nominees be pro-life. Ultimately, that led to Donald Trump releasing a list of people that he would name to the Supreme Court, all of whom were originalists. Mitch McConnell held the open seat in uh, the Obama administration for those justices. We got three of the five people who voted to overturn Roe v. Wade as a result of that. And you can draw a straight line from the overturn of Roe v. Wade one week ago today back 17 years to the Harriet Myers confirmation fight. And that's a really important story. And, and one thing I think it's also important for our, our listeners and our viewers to understand is that those conversations with the White House, uh, with senators whose job it is to confirm a Supreme Court justice mean nothing if they don't actually aren't if those people are not actually supported by millions of voters who vote on the life issue. So every pro-life American who prioritized that issue when they went to the ballot. It was their influence that really is what persuades the White House and U.S. Uh, members of the Senate to, to insist that we get some conviction. And that was the first time they drew the line in the sand. And it's good to have people in the office and lobbying and Gary Bauer and Tony Perkins and the people who were involved in that. But without the support of millions of Americans who have their back, those conversations mean nothing. So everyone can take some credit and feel some consolation, some satisfaction from the success of those conf those, uh, those conversations and the, and the change of direction that, that happened at that moment that led to uh, what we are celebrating today. And Ben, one last question uh, for you. We know what kind of judges we got from Trump, as you've said, Three of the five that voted to overturn Roe and Casey were Trump appointees. Do you see that as evidence that the influence of the pro-life community is growing in America? It certainly is. You know, when Donald Trump ran for president, there was a great deal of skepticism because to the extent that he had expressed his own views on the matter, he had been pro-choice. When he ran uh, abortively for president in 1999 for the Reform Party, he supported partial birth abortion. So there wasn't the idea that he was going to be uh, a conviction politician. And yet, as it turns out, 
when uh, when the evangelical movement stepped forward and said we were we're drawing a line in the sand, we will not support another stealth nominee, we will not back another nominee whose views are not known, that are not original intent and originalist constitutionalist. Then you saw uh, Trump and uh, Mitch McConnell and others step forward and respond to that pressure because, as you said, it's backed by millions upon millions of voters. Approximately 26 percent of the electorate in 2016 was pro-life evangelical. And so when you add all of that up together, you end up with a massive victory that we had. You know, if I could, there's just one, one small note that uh, ties all this together. In 1988, you had the contentious Robert Bork hearing. And then 17 years later, you had Harriet Myers come forward. And the, the Republican Party uh, put her forward, but evangelicals stood up for their convictions and didn't allow this to happen. Seventeen years later, we got the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Now, Samuel Alito may have been the second choice for George W. Bush, but King David was the second choice, too. He excelled the one who had come before him, and Samuel Alito is saving millions upon millions of lives, which is amazing, originalist, constitutionalist jurisprudence. Amen. Ben Johnson, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. God bless. Find that excellent article again at WashingtonStand.com. Encourage you to do so. Now that we've taken a look back at how we got here, it's time to spend a few minutes at the end of our show here today to talk about what the church needs to do post-Dobbs. And to join me in that conversation is my colleague at the Center for Biblical Worldview, David Clausen, who happens to be the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. David, good to see you. Happy Friday and happy one week, Joseph, of living in a post-Row America. It is, a, it is indeed much to celebrate, and I think uh, those of us who are going to be celebrating the 4th are going to do so uh, with additional enthusiasm this year. But David, uh, you wrote an article this week also for the Washington Stand that I encourage people to go look up your, your suggestions about what the church should be doing uh, post-Dobbs and post-Roe. Right. What's your advice? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. The first thing I said in the article is, Joseph, uh, is that we need to just be thanking God. Uh, you know, FRC uh, led a prayer movement in the fall. Uh, we convened evangelical leaders and Catholic leaders, uh, encouraging pastors to lead their congregations in prayer. Then we had another meeting in the lead up to the oral arguments uh, where we uh, had thousands of people around the country to pray, asking God uh, to move on the hearts of the justices. And Joseph, my goodness, uh, we serve a God who hears and answers prayer. And, and now that we live in a post-row world, uh, let me just give you two things that I think every Christian, every church should be prioritizing. One is support for crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, the, the crisis pregnancy centers now for decades have been on the front lines of heroically serving moms in need and, and their children. I mentioned it in the piece, Joseph, but just in the last five years, 800,000 babies uh, have been saved because of the work of crisis pregnancy centers. Those same crisis pregnancy centers just in 2019 alone uh, provided $270 million of tangible goods and services like diapers and other things for these moms. And so I think every church, uh, if a church has, if your church hasn't adopted a crisis pregnancy center, I think that's a great practical way uh, to serve uh, moms in, in need. And the other thing I'll, I'll mention, Joseph, is I think I think every pastor needs to be preaching on the issue. Uh, our colleague George Barna did a survey in 2020 uh, which showed that 44% of evangelicals, so this isn't the broader population, uh, but evangelicals, uh, people like us, 44% believe the Bible is ambiguous in its teaching on abortion. 
Well, Joseph, as you and I have talked about, the Bible is anything but ambiguous. It affirms the personhood of the uh, unborn child from cover to cover. So I think part of discipling and catechizing our people uh, is preaching sermons, expositional sermons on Psalm 139, Luke 1, and other pro-life texts. So I think those are two really practical things uh, that every church can do uh, in this post-Roe world that we live in. That's really good advice. And David, earlier in the show, uh, I spoke with Mary Zock about what's next and specifically in response to the abortion lobby and their prioritization of chemical abortions, yeah. both the risk that that represents and the, just the uh, the looming political uh, conflict and battle that will take place over that issue. Um, but from your perspective, you, you uh, encourage us to prepare for what's next. What do you mean there? Yeah, I think we need to realize, Joseph, the pro-abortion lobby, their response has already in the last seven days been fierce. Uh, even when the leaked opinion came out, you know, there's an assassination attempt on Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Um, New York is already moving to now uh, put in their constitution uh, that abortion is a constitutional right in New York. So this battle is not going away. And so what I mean by preparing ahead, we, we you know, Overturning Roe v. Wade has never been the goal of the pro-life movement. The goal of the pro-life movement is to make abortion illegal and unthinkable. And so really the work that we've been doing for decades now, we need to continue. We need to continue to vote our values. We need to continue to vote for convictional pro-life leaders. We need to disciple and catechize our people. We need to uh, help mothers in need. Uh, This is the work, you know, Joseph, you and I are on Twitter. We see people all the time say, you know, pro-life folks really are just pro-birth. That couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, We need to keep doing the heroic work we've been doing for decades. And I think if we do that, uh, the road ahead uh, for the unborn and for all folks in America, it will be very bright. That's exactly right. David Clausen, we appreciate your time and your wisdom. As always, happy fourth to you. Thank you, Joseph. And friends, we thank you for joining us today. We hope that you will enjoy your time with your family and your friends as you celebrate Independence Day. As we celebrate this particular Independence Day, we are thankful that millions of future Americans are more free than they once were. And we remain thankful to live in a place where hard work and commitment to the truth can still make a difference. And you have made a difference, and we are thankful to you for doing so. Thanks for your time today. We look forward to seeing you next time here on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.